0: Ian Morley is a lecturer in paleoanthropology and human sciences here in Oxford. He has published widely on paleolithic archaeology and the evolutionary origins of musical, ritual and religious behaviours. As a field archaeologist, he has excavated at a number of prehistoric and classical sites. As well as many articles and book chapters and collected works, he is the author of the forthcoming book, The Prehistory of Music, The Evolutionary Origins and Archaeology of Human Musical Behaviours. Please join us in welcoming him today. Well, thank you very much for that introduction. I'm used to delivering speeches, talks in a sort of slightly declamatory style and not used to being surrounded by microphones. So uh, if I end up bellowing at me, then do put your fingers in your ears and uh, gesticulate at me or something like this, um, and I'll tone things down uh, and try and maintain a more conversational tone. So, Thank you very much for that introduction. Very comprehensive introduction, in fact. It's worth noting that the, um, the question of the origins of music um, has been something that really has had an explosion of interest in the last uh, decade uh, to, to 15 years. Prior to that, um, people were taking a particular interest in the evolutionary origins of language, and music never seemed to factor within that, uh, that sort of question. And increasingly, people have realized from a wide range of different disciplines that their own work and research onto, uh, I- into questions of uh, musical production and processing in humans um, all feed into these questions of the origins of pretty fundamental aspects of human behavior. So it's something that's been growing and growing and, thankfully, uh, has recognition. And uh, I'm certainly very uh, grateful for the um, fact that it's been chosen as a theme for uh, the Human Sciences uh, seminar today. So, what are the origins of music? Gary Larson... (laughs) We all have to thank Gary Larson for producing a cartoon for absolutely every single situation or <laughs> academic question that you might want to, uh, to ask, and he does a great deal to contribute to the apparent credibility of the people who are doing a talk, which is not through any credit of their own. This is his idea of the origin of music. Um, I suspect that in actual fact there would probably be fewer different types of instruments and uh, more notes, uh, and you'll see whether you will agree with that after this. Now, we know that uh, in actual fact... Uh, the creation of the earliest musical instruments dates to at least 36,000 years ago. We've got very good archaeological evidence for musical behaviours in Europe at that point, uh, associated with Homo sapiens, that's anatomically modern humans, um, pretty much at the time that we get the first evidence of them in Europe, in fact. Uh, so it would appear that uh, most, the most likely explanation is that they brought this type of behaviour with them uh, to Europe, uh, along with various other aspects of behaviours that we associate firmly with modern humans. Uh, the evidence for this type of thing, particularly uh, is rich coming from um, French and uh, some, some German sites, Uh Geisenkloster and um in the Alp Valley uh, in Germany have produced uh, quite a number of different uh, flutes, or as we call them, uh, or pipes as they, they probably should be known, um, made out of... Uh, the radius and ulna of large birds, as well as being more remarkably made from mammoth ivory, where they've gone out of their way to replicate in mammoth ivory something which could have very easily been produced using the the bird of a bone, uh, which raises all sorts of questions about the significance of the material they're choosing to use. These finds have been increasing uh, in recent years and have been excavated extremely meticulously. Some of them have been generated from uh, collections that have been excavated before, but the finds had not been recognised uh, there's a total of over 140 items like this that are reputed to be pipes or flutes from the whole of the Upper Paleolithic period now, from 36,000 years ago down to the end of the last ice age, about 12,000 years ago. and. Um, to be honest, there's varying degrees of credibility in their attribution of those music musical instruments, but um, these most recent finds are without doubt musical instruments, and they're also the oldest, and they predate our uh, earliest evidence of cave art, incidentally, although they're spoken about often a lot less than other, sim- other forms of symbolic representation. But if we seek to understand how these various capabilities that lead to musical behaviours actually uh, came about, it's no good just looking at um, the archaeological evidence for... For the fact of its existence, which we know that it did exist by this point and is firmly associated with Homo sapiens, if we want to understand these d- different abilities that comprise musical behaviors that underlying musical behaviors and that have come to be used together we have to we have to look at uh, a wide range of different disciplines. Music constitutes a really significant part of life in all human cultures, and uh, for this reason, all elements of science of humans uh, are relevant to questions of its use and origin. Now, I'm going to outline just a few of those. Um, We've got, obviously, a very limited time for this kind of thing, and you have to bear in mind that I'm only touching upon the tip of the iceberg of any of these uh, different elements of the uh, the various disciplines that are being used. But what I'll try and do is paint a picture of how they can each inform uh, understanding and contribute to a larger picture. So we need to understand the nature of music, what its roles uh, are in the diversity of different human cultures that exist around the world, uh, what functions it fulfills and how it affects people. We need to have a a clear understanding of what exactly music is and what it does for people uh, as an important part of our question that we're asking. And for that we can turn to fields like anthropology, ethnomusicology, music psychology. We also need to understand... Which elements of musical function, its production and its perception, are innate factors which we're endowed with um, as part of our evolutionary heritage, and which in contrast are uh, and which of those instead are culturally learned specifics, because obviously large elements of musical practice are specific to individual cultures, but nevertheless there are capacities which are inherited, which form a foundation for those behaviours. And for, to answer that sort of question, we need to look at primatology, developmental psychology, and the types of behaviours that are carried out by adults and infants when they interact with each other. But all of this evidence needs to be situated in an evolutionary context if we're going to try and understand how this set of behaviours came about. We've got to understand the context in which the capabilities and the behaviours that make use of them actually developed and might have been useful. And this is where paleoanthropology, uh, looking at the uh, evolution of the capacities for vocalization that we have, uh, changes in brain structure, changes in the inner ear, and the relationships between different neurological functions that exist in the brain today, this is where they all come into play. If we can understand the relationships between these functions and how they developed in relation to each other, then we can build up a much richer picture pardon the expression, of the uh, relationships between these different elements of musical behaviour. They're not parts of separate stories, all these different elements. They're all elements of the same story. If you like, they're sort of cleaner patches on the grimy window of our view into the vista of our own species. One clean area can help us to clarify the view that we can see from another clean area of this grimy window. And where we can join those cleaner patches up, we get uh, a better view of the larger part of our nature. And this is where the multidisciplinary approach really comes into its own and has the potential to be greater than the sum of its parts. So what about the nature of music and its roles? Well, if we look at the way that music is used in different societies around the world and look beyond the ways in which we use it, uh, which have formed the majority focus of research into um, musical uh, behaviour and capabilities... We find that behavior exists in all human societies. It's a universal, it's something that's shared by human societies and presumably was and must have been shared by those populations that are ancestral to the human societies that we find today across the world. Um, it tends to be a very participatory activity. Uh, there's much less dichotomy between performer and audience than we have in our very recent musical past and uh, our current uh, musical practice. We often think of there being distinct roles in musical practice that are. Um, where you have a dedicated performer and an audience, that the music is a sort of commodity that's created and presented to, to the audience. Now, this is rather antithetical to the way that it's used in, in um, our own folk uh, sort of contexts, but also within the wider um, practices throughout the world. That's very much a minority view of the way that music functions. It's a participatory, integrative activity in which every member of a, a group who's present is contributing to, in some way there's greater activity in this type of uh, the greater level of activity with this type of um, behaviour, um, often at times that have particular social significance. It's used to mark events. Uh, it's used at times when there's uh, subsistence stress, for example, very often in different societies that you look at. The idea that people are either musicians or non-musicians is a bit of an anathema to people. We're in our society at the moment very much encouraged to believe that you know you dabble in a musical instrument at an early age and either you have an aptitude for it or you don't and thereafter you're sort of classified or at least you classify in your own mind and and, um, often in the language of others as being either a non-musician or a musician. Now this idea is antithetical uh, and a bit of an anathema to a lot of societies where the very idea of not being musical seems incomprehensible. And it's not because they're different from us, it's because of the way that the behaviours are viewed and classified. And another thing to note is that the uh, behaviours that we see uh, widely are very often predominantly vocal. We have a tendency to view musical instruments as being the foundation of musical behaviours, when, of course, they're not. The foundations of musical behaviours exist within our own bodies. We're endowed with a uh, fantastic melodic instrument in the the context of our own voice, Um, and we're also endowed with fantastic capabilities for making percussive sound without having to recourse to any artificially produced objects. Now, that is an interesting point in its own right because we're anatomically set up extremely well for those elements of music that we make use of Um, but it's also a cautionary point uh, point to mention in terms of our treatment of the archaeological record because those bone flutes and so on that we find are really only the bone objects they're only the things that are going to preserve Uh, the absence of that sort of evidence is in no way evidence of the absence of those types of behaviours In terms of the way that we process and deal with music, um, it carries emotional meaning in lots of different ways. Uh, It has very different types of content uh, that are processed in different neurological systems. It's thought of as not having an explicit content in the way that language does, a sort of lexical content, but it nevertheless has the potential to carry profound meaning in various ways. These different types of contexts are uh, processed in different neurological systems, produced by different neurological systems, but a lot is derived from um, gestural and communicative aspects um, of physiological control. The processing of tonal aspects of auditory signals um, share neural mechanisms, whether they're speech or music, and the same applies to the rhythmic aspects of signals. There are big significant overlaps between uh, the production of uh, rhythmic aspects of various different types of signals and uh, in turn um, with the tonal content, whether it's tone within speech sounds uh, or within musical sounds. In production, though, rhythmic and, although they're, they, they, rhythmic and tonal content have sort of separate systems controlling them to a certain degree, in the actual production of sound, rhythmic and tonal control are really closely related uh, in the planning and execution of complex movements. And we've got this interrelated system uh, for uh, the planning and execution of the very fine complex um, musculature, muscle control that's required to produce auditory signals. And that relies upon a rhythmic motor coordinator to plan and execute those very complex uh, muscular uh, sequences. So vocalization and gesture and facial expression, they all use fundamentally interlinked systems, uh, a communicative system of emotional, uh, emotional communication. We're very sensitive as well to those cues in other people. In fact, vocalisation and body language can be thought of as vocal and corporeal gesture, a system that's rooted in um, communication and perception of personal and emotional states. Now, melodic vocalisation makes use of the vocal gesture part of the system and dance makes use of the corporeal gesture part of the system, but they're related very closely in this need to coordinate and plan very finely honed muscular movements. Now we can also look at primatology uh, and try and understand what it is that's innate in these behaviours. Which of these things are learned which are innate? What do our nearest relatives possess uh, and how does that compare with the things that we possess? Well, higher primates carry out tonal vocal behaviours too. Uh, They have a more limited range of sounds that they can produce, as we'll see in a minute. Um, They're used to communicate social information, to communicate emotional information between individuals. They're used for, by infant uh, chimpanzees in particular, but other higher primates as well, to solicit care and attention from their parent, so a way of um, stimulating an emotional response in a parent. Infant higher primates of some varieties also carry out uh, babbling behaviors, which are sim- similar to those sorts of behaviors that are carried out by human infants uh, in their pre linguistic period, the sort of um, vocal sequences where they're exercising a series of vocalization capabilities. Uh, And they're also used for warning and territorial calls in in higher primates. So they have a sense of meaning associated with particular sounds. Now, what about human infants? Well, they're highly sensitive to tonal content of vocalisation from birth, irrespective of what language is being used. So you can interchange uh, a tonal language speaker like a Cantonese-Chinese speaker with, uh, with a Western, say, an American-English speaker uh, speaking to the, to the same infant. You can swap them over and the infant will be equally engaged by the, the vocalisation that they're carrying out and they'll pick up on the tonal content that's significant within those vocalisations regardless of the, uh, the actual linguistic content uh, as you would imagine when they're pre-linguistic. Uh, but it doesn't matter whether, what the language is. Tonal content is still extremely important. Um, it can communicate uh, well-being an emotional state, and there's evidence to suggest that infants perceive that type of information within the vocalizations, and that's why these vocalizations are so useful uh, to, um, to parents to try and uh, moderate and influence the behavior of the infants. They perceive frequency, timing, and timbre from birth, uh, in auditory signals as well as responding to rhythmicity and utterances so these are not learned behaviours, they're instinctive they're present, they're part of our evolutionary heritage infant directed vocalisations share many characteristics with musical signals and often the terminology that's used to describe them overlaps uh, they're used to, directly to moderate arousal in infants emotional state um, they're pre-equipped to extract, extract emotional information through these sorts of innate abilities from these signals and to respond to them and they're universal across cultures The vocalisations that we use with infants seem to draw upon ancient and deep-rooted modes of communicative content that's not linguistic but paralinguistic. And that content still exists within our linguistic utterances. It doesn't exist in the written page of written languages. But when we interact with each other, we're using this uh, prosodic content in our vocalisations, and it's hugely significant in the way that we perceive the information from others. And it's all part of this gestural system that's tied in with facial expression and body language. We exploit these fundamental responses to tonal contour and rhythm and repetition, which are features both of vocalisation and of music. So what about the evolutionary context for these types of capabilities? Well, what can we look at from paleoanthropology, from these bones that we find? Well, there are a few different elements that we can look at where there are skeletal corollaries for capabilities. Uh, One of them is with breath control. There's certain evidence that uh, allows us to draw conclusions about when the control over breathing that we need to make use of to produce prolonged vocalisations comes about. I'll speak about that in a minute. There's uh, evidence for the evolution of the vocal tract itself, the development of uh, laryngeal control and the versatility to produce the different tones that we produce with our lungs. There's also a certain amount of evidence for changes in brain anatomy, the areas that are associated with planned muscular control, sequences sequences of movements, that I've been talking about, manual and orofacial. And there's also evidence that points to uh, the inner ear structure and uh, at what point that became modern-like. And these are all related to changes in the base of cranium, in the bottom of the skull. So what about this breath control? Well, um, this is the Nariocotomy boy, a who who's juvenile. Um, but would have been the same height as us at, at uh, adulthood. You can see that his postcranial skeleton is very, very similar to that of um, anatomically modern humans, although his uh, skull is somewhat more archaic, being 1.75 million years old. Now, there's a strong correlation between the dimensions of the nerve uh, fibers that travel through um, the uh, vertebrae. Uh, the vertebral column, um, and the size of the vertebral column itself. That's not true for all nerve um, fibres and the canals through which they travel, um, but in the case of the vertebrae, there's a very strong correlation between the, the size of the neural bundle and the actual size of the hole that goes through your vertebrae. So it's been possible to draw some conclusions about the level of innervation of uh, breath control and of laryngeal control in this early ergaster because he's so well preserved. Now the cervical vertebrae, that's the ones in the neck, above the shoulders, um, are uh, the dimensions of those are the same as with us. Uh, so it would suggest that there's the, the, the neurology that's responsible for the control of the larynx, the laryngeal muscles, um, there's no reason to believe that that wasn't uh, equally developed to our own. And that is responsible for the control of pitch and contour of the vocalizations that you make. However, the thoracic vertebrae, the ones in the thorax, in the main part of the body, um, in Homo agaster, at least, is still the size of those that you see in australopithecines, which have the same sort of dimensions relative to the body that, uh, that they do in great apes, And that suggests that, they, that he had the same sort of uh, ability to control exhalation uh, that chimpanzees have, which, and australopithecines, which um, is considerably less control than we actually have. What we have is the ability to take a breath, to inhale, and to be able to release that breath at a constant pressure which is what allows us to maintain a consistent volume over the course of a long utterance where we've controlled the flow out of that air over the entire time passing over our larynx. Now... Chimpanzees don't have that ability. They can produce short utterances. Um, but if, produ- if they attempt to produce long utterances, then the, the volume will tail off over time because the pressure, the air pressure in your lungs decreases as the air leaves your lungs. So it's quite a specialised skill that we have, being able to maintain a consistent volume of sound over the course of an entire utterance as our breath leaves our body. Now, it would seem that at this stage, there was control over the tone. There was pretty fine control over the tone, but there wasn't the ability to produce extended Vocalizations controlled for um, their pitch and contour but what about the larynx itself well the position of the larynx in your throat has an influence on the range of sounds that you can produce and this is indicated uh, its position is indicated by the larynx uh, the position of the uh, hyoid bone in the throat because the hyoid bone supports the larynx the hyoid bone is a free floating bone in the body for that reason they're not preserved in the fossil record very much but we have four of them now from different periods of human evolution. Uh, amongst Australopithecines, they look virtually the same as they do um, amongst higher primates like chimpanzees and gorillas. But um, amongst uh, the Homo heidelbergensis, um, they seem to be uh, very, very similar or virtually identical, in fact, to our own. And amongst Neanderthals, the same. Uh, so it would suggest that uh, the actual form of the larynge- laryngeal anatomy um, was pretty much the same as ours in our last common ancestor with Neanderthals now the position of that larynx affects your, uh, the size of your supralaryngeal space and the amount of different frequencies that you can produce and it's also an indication of the position of the base of your tongue which you use obviously as part of your articulatory mechanism now if that's rooted at the very low down like ours is um, then it has a lot of degrees of freedom of movement and you can use the tongue in lots of different ways to articulate sounds now, because it's soft tissue, it doesn't preserve, but the bony structures that support that soft tissue do preserve, and several researchers have reconstructed over the, uh, over the last sort of, 20 or 30 years um, what the shape of those bony structures indicates about the position of the larynx. It would seem that it, that it starts to move towards a human-like position uh, amongst uh, Homo ergaster, early Homo erectus, um, and ultimately has a position very much like our own, by the time of Homo habilis, again, the common ancestor, or a species that's a common ancestor of uh, Neanderthals and modern humans, so by about five hundred thousand years ago. So those things seem to um, seem to confirm uh, each other's findings there. Uh, and indicates that there would would have been a a broad range of vocal sounds producible. That's not to say that they had the ability to speak a full lexical language like we had, but it does suggest that they had uh, the ability to produce a wide range of vocal sounds that were controlled for pitch and contour and for their duration by that late stage. We also have some evidence of brain structure. Brains brains don't fossilise, not usually. Not usually. But fossils of brains um, can exist uh, when the skull has been filled up with sediment, and you can see some examples here. These are Australopithecines from Smart in South Africa, robust Australopithecines whose crania uh, filled up with very fine sediment before the crania were destroyed. As you can see, parts of the crania are missing, uh, although the brain that formed with the, the, the cast of the brain that formed within them um, formed before those parts of the, the bone structure le- were left uh, were destroyed. Our um, Our brain is virtually the same size as the inside of our skull. There's very little gap between our brain and the inside of the skull. So you can make a cast of the inside of a cranium and you can get a good idea of the the relative proportions of different parts of the brain as well as things like cerebral blood flow to different parts because the arteries, as you can probably see in the photograph, the arteries are uh, are preserved to some extent as well. It doesn't tell you anything about the internal structure of the brain, of course, but it can tell you um, about which parts of the brain have been disproportionately growing uh, relative to other parts. And we don't have the same set of relative proportions of the brain uh, that uh, other higher primates have, chimpanzees and gorillas. We show particular development in the frontal lobes. Um, We show particular development as well in the left temporal area, lateral tuber of the left temporal region. And uh, this has been uh, taken to... uh, It allows conclusions to be drawn about the relative importance of those parts of the brain over the course of human evolution. Uh, Neocortical development is thought to be particularly significant. But this left temporal region is often equated with Broca's area, uh, which people think of as the, uh, a language area of the brain. But in fact, this Broca's region doesn't solely have a function within linguistic behaviours. It seems that and the areas around it seem to be fundamentally um, important in this ability to plan and execute sequences of fine movements, fine muscular movements. It's implicated in manual control, fine manual control, and it's also implicated in very fine orofacial and vocal control. And you start to see the first development in that, that area, disproportionate with the rest of the brain, uh, with Homo habilis, shortly before two million years ago. Uh, it becomes particularly pronounced in its disproportionate development um, with Homo agasta, who you've already seen. Um, and it has modern dimensions uh, relative to the rest of the brain, essentially, with uh, and our common ancestor with Neanderthals and modern humans. Again, it's about half a million years ago. <clears throat> We can also draw conclusions, of course, about the relationships between different functions in the brain, how music and language and emotional content and uh, social content are processed, and whether or not the same systems are being used and how those systems are being reintegrated. Because those systems, like the organs of our body, have have evolved in tandem with each other and in relationship with each other to form this greater structure as a whole. And so the relationships between those different neurological functions um, are very important in terms of understanding how they've evolved in relation to each other. As I say, I can only touch upon the very tip of the iceberg or the type of the research that's been done about this, but there's a, there's a massive literature on these things now. In terms of the ear, the ear rotates um, as we become fully bipedal and you can see there on that diagram the difference in the uh, inner ear anatomy of a uh, chimpanzee and, uh, or of a quadrupedal animal and of a bipedal animal and it's partly a product of this shift to bipedalism um, but it's also linked with this change in the shape of the underside of the skull which is, which is all mixed in with the shift to bipedalism, the loss of prognathism, the extent to which the centre of our face protrudes for example but we also know that the inner ear has evolved to be particularly sensitive to the types of the, the frequencies of sound that are produced by our vocal cords, and not just the frequencies of sound that are used for language, but the whole range of vocal sounds that we are able to produce. Uh, we've got a finely tuned system, not surprisingly, perhaps, um, between, uh, the the, uh, between the ear and the between the ear and the vocalisation capabilities. Um, but that change in the structure of the inner ear of course has to to be alongside changes in the neural structure that support those types of abilities and the same goes for all these physiological abilities you don't have the emergence of a physiological capability without a parallel emergence of the neurology that's capable of controlling it so all of these things have to be understood in, in, in the context of each other so what can we say in summary well, laryngeal, vocal and auditory physiology and neurology they all developed in tandem with each other um, the most sig- significant and noticeable changes have been uh, since Homo agaster about one and three quarter million years ago um, to two million years ago. Modern vocal physiology and fine vocal control and planning of complex sequences of vocalization seem to be in place by Homo heidelbergensis uh, at least 300,000, probably 500,000 years ago with our last common ancestor with Neanderthals. Neurological evidence suggests that there are specialisations, of course, for linguistic and non-linguistic vocal behaviour and processing of tonal content in non-vocal and vocal signals. They share a lot of the same neurology uh, for certain aspects of that production and then other neurology is specialised to the the kinds of specific functions that we use these things for today. But it looks like they share a fundamental underlying system um, at least that's rooted in um, priming of the whole of the motor system for vocal, facial and corporeal gesture. They're all related and they're all systematically used by music and dance. The higher level sort of linguistic uh, type of behaviours that we carry out and the musical functions, uh, the sort of more analytical musical functions that we might carry out in the the context of more modern musical behaviours, they're lateralised in more specialised areas of each hemisphere. Um, And they seem to have emerged later as specialised functions from this underlying fundamentally important ability to uh, express and communicate uh, interpersonal information through vocal and body language. So what can we say in in conclusions? Well, rhythmic and tonal uh, emotive elements have a very ancient foundation. They're innate in humans. Uh, They're very important for emotional communication and interpersonal relationships um, in a lot of different species and uh, certainly from birth in humans. Tonal emotional communication and vocalization uh, seems to be the ancient original function of vocalization physiology. Uh, it, It forms the foundation for both what ultimately became symbolic, linguistic, lexical and semantic communication um, and melodic vocalisation and it presses these buttons when we, when we hear these types of auditory signals These vocalisations are still used uh, by infants and adults in our day-to-day speech and vocalisations Instigation of this system involves priming of the whole of the motor system including gesture and our posture and our body language and we're extremely sensitive to these cues the interrelationship between them adds value to the, to the participatory aspect of musical behaviours, and this may be why music is so often in, in, in all of the widespread human societies in which it exists an integrative and participatory activity. The foundations are fundamentally interactive, participatory and emotive. And full music and language seem to have developed from these foundations. Now, whether it was solely in modern humans or whether it's somewhat earlier, it's a very difficult thing to pin down. But we can at least be confident that a lot of the elements that we make use of in music, a lot of the reasons why it's functional and why it fulfills certain purposes for us, have a very, very ancient foundation. Thank you.